Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 6. Just verses 1 through 3 this morning. We're kind of taking this passage a little slowly or carefully. This is an important passage in Hebrews. It's a warning passage, much like the psalm we just sung, recognizing God's judgment and his wrath that is coming. And and there's a, a warning to flee from that wrath, right? To turn to God in obedience. And so 6, 1 through 3 is sort of this reminder, this call to persevere in the faith. It's really a theme of Hebrews. We find multiple warnings like this. But before we get to the text... I found it interesting. I read this recently in a book, um, not a Christian book, ju- just a, um, a book kind of about a, a cultural need that we have to raise our boys well. And it talked about Native Americans and their practice of planning for the future. It said that they have this, um, this thing that they do where they, they keep in mind seven generations into the future and seven generations into the past. They, they reflect upon that. So tribal leaders expect their actions to impact people for the next 150 years. Uh, not only do they keep future generations in mind, but you know, they, keep, they look back upon their ancestors, their forefathers, and they recognize and acknowledge with gratitude what they have passed down to them. Now, considering the fact that God has made us He has put eternity into man's heart, Ecclesiastes 3.10. It's natural for us to desire to have that enduring impact, to pass on what's been given to us. And one of the things that we can appreciate in the Reformed faith is our catechisms, our confessions, our creeds. We just think of the Reformed catechisms that have been passed on and over the last you know, hundreds of years, we've, we've got here the Reformed Catechisms with this robust articulation of our faith that if you count it out is about 20 generations now since Martin Luther's Catechism was written. And so we should look back with gratitude upon that, that contribution that these catechisms have made upon our Reformed faith and how they've enriched our practice of the faith, our worship. But unfortunately... The, the very denominations where those catechisms were written and formed are increasingly not even referencing or looking to the catechisms for direction, for guidance. And they're the same ones that produced them and then maintained them for so long, have, have, they've just gone by the wayside. So that over the last century, sales of the Westminster Shorter Catechism have been in sharp decline. Now, some of that is available online, and so people aren't buying physical copies maybe, but that's more recent. You can look at the last century, 100 years. People have not been buying catechisms. You probably have to search hard to find them in certain, you know, in homes where you might expect them to be. So needless to say... That decline of appreciation for the catechisms has also paralleled a decline in doctrinal 
knowledge. And just look at the state of the church, the state of our understanding of doctrine. Uh, you can look at a study that's done by Ligonier. I think they do it in conjunction with Lifeway every couple of years. Um, it, it's not looking good. <laughs> the church isn't getting smarter. Mainline Presbyterians no longer believe what their standards teach in many cases. So as we get to Hebrews, in the midst of arguing that, that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the author, push, uh, he pauses that argument, right? He's been making that argument in chapter 5, and then he pauses it here to give a warning, a strong warning. And he's, he's charging his audience that at the beginning of this warning that we looked at last week in chapter 5, 11 through 14, he charged them with lazy listening, just becoming sluggish in their approach toward the things of God, maybe assuming too much about them, themselves, assuming that they've already know these things, they can, you know, they can spend their time thinking about other things as the gospel's being proclaimed or something like that. And so he charged them with that laziness. And instead of being able to teach others, he said they're still in need of learning these basic principles of the Christian faith. They had not made any progress, maybe since the last time he had been, uh, been with them or the last time that he had proclaimed the gospel to them. And instead of reteaching re them those elementary doctrines of Christ, he reminds them of the categories that he's already taught them, categories that have been covered that, that he knows they're familiar with. And he challenges them to leave these to go on to maturity. Now, we'll explain what that means when he says to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. He's not saying abandon it, right? Like, you don't have to worry about that anymore. We'll, we'll talk about that. But he challenges them to leave that in order to go on to maturity. So the foundation of these basic principles have been laid out for them in the past. And it's time for them to mature beyond them to begin building upon the foundation, right? It's like they've laid out, the apostles have laid out this beautiful platform for them, this wonderful foundation, and they've like just laid out their sleeping bag and started you know, just thinking this is, I'm content with this. I don't need to actually build a structure on it. I don't need to go further. And so the very nature of a foundation is that it remains in place. It, the foundation isn't meant to, to move around or shift. So you don't have to keep laying the foundation over and over again. That doesn't mean, though, that you ignore the foundation, that you don't need it, or that you assume everyone already has a foundation. And that can also get you in trouble. But in this case, the author knows that they have done this. They've laid this foundation for this group before. And yet they have not moved beyond it. So you must go beyond the foundation, begin building upon that foundation with structural components. Paul makes the same case to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 10. And as he said in pre this author said in the previous uh, section, there's a time to shift from milk to solid food. There's a time for us to, to begin to, to grow and mature in godliness, in understanding. And so here he's going to list six elementary doctrines that essentially provide an outline of Christian belief. 
Now, John Calvin speculated that these doctrines constituted an early church catechism. Now, he, there's nothing really beyond this text to suggest that, that that's how it was used, but, but at least the way it's laid out here, it, it implies that there's some recognition that they're going to be familiar with these themes. They're going to be familiar with the subjects he's talking about. They've already thought about this. They've asked questions and discussed these things in the context of this particular community. So very much, it's, it was utilized like a catechism, these, these themes. And this is probably not an exhaustive list. It's probably just a, a representative list. And you'll see, I think he sets it up in a, in a very um, particular way, where there's, there's a list of six, but they're paired together. So as always, we have three points in our outline, even though there's actually six different topics to talk about, because I think each one is given... Uh, as a pair. So what we can say is that this list, uh, ele- the, the list represents elements that were found in the preaching and the practice of the early church in the book of Acts. Everything that we're going to read is, you can point back to something that was said or done in the book of Acts. So this is the early church teaching on basic Christian faith. The subjects were meant clearly to spur them on toward perseverance, to go beyond these things, to continue to study and learn and apply it. Because I think back then, just as now, we could say the average believer is oftentimes stuck at that elementary level. And they're not even really, they they have an elementary level of understanding without a motivation to go beyond it. There's just a contentment to stay where they are. But once the foundation of our faith is established, we're supposed to build upon that knowledge to continue to grow, to never rest, be content in that sense, to be content with where we are, but to always be persevering, pressing on to understand further and deeper things. So let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it before we read Hebrews 6, 1 through 3. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and this challenge. Even as it was challenging last week, we have another challenge this week, and we'll see a a very clear warning next week that follows. But Lord, this isn't just to beat us up. This isn't just to to cause us to, to wince in pain, but it's to spur us on, to encourage us, to equip us even to move beyond where we are. Lord, we recognize that we cannot do that apart from your spirit. Lord, that we need your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to soften our hearts to these things. That we would be motivated and moved by your word and transformed by your work in and through your word. And so, Lord, help us to give ourselves now undivided, fully attentive, arrest our hearts, and Lord, challenge us, encourage us that as we engage in conversation and fellowship after the service, or that we would continue to build upon what has begun in this text. And then when we go home, that we would prioritize teaching this to our household. All of it as a means of giving you glory and of depending upon you for the ability 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Read with me Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Amen. This is God's holy word. If you're following along in your outline, our first one is just first one here, basic soteriology. I'm going to use some big words here, sort of applying and challenging the very idea of pressing you a little further, right? Giving you some encouragement to read deeper, to study further these topics. But this first verse talks about basic soteriology. It's the study or doctrine of salvation. And he gives us two examples here. Laying, again, a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith. Every true believer begins by receiving the gift of repentance and faith. That's the beginning of our relationship with God. This is the most crucial part. It's a reference to our past justification as believers. The justification that God has done in us in the past. And so repentance from dead works, this is... How do we understand this? Well, his audience, this, first of all, the phrase dead works doesn't occur anywhere else other than Hebrews. It does occur one more time in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, but it seems to indicate simply sin. Right? Uh, in 14, it talks about the blood of Christ covering those dead works, right? So anywhere that, that Christ's blood was necessary to cleanse us would be a reference to our dead works, and that's just, that, that, that's everything that is sinful about us. But it might also imply something about kind of what you're trusting in or relying upon that is contrary to the will of God. Or the dead works trying to, trying to justify yourself, in other words. Trying to hold up some other standard before God. See, I, I've, I've done this for you, now I can find favor with you. A repentance from dead works is turning away from our sin and trusting in Christ alone for our salvations. Doing anything contrary to his will needs to be covered and and forgiven, repented of. Every sinner deserves death, and unbelievers are dead in their sin, Ephesians 2.1, and so they're incapable of pleasing God. So that's the dead works. It's, It's anything that we do apart from Christ. And so his audience, anyone who's apart from Christ, needs to repent of all the ways in which they've fallen short, even where they relied upon their outward obedience for salvation. And so that's repentance. Then it leads to or it involves a transformation, right? We experience a change of mind where we turn away from our sinful independence, acknowledging our need for a Savior. And this requires that we have a true sense of our sin, as well as an apprehension of the mercy of God that's held out to us in Christ. So repentance is turning away from ourselves, turning away from from our own pleasures, our own delight, and turning to what we know pleases God. And that's the second part of this, the second part or the other side of the coin of conversion. You have repentance and faith faith toward God. So faith is best defined as receiving and resting 
in the promise and power of God to save us through the gospel of his son. We cannot rightly approach God the Father apart from God the Son. So faith goes hand in hand with repentance. In repentance, we turn away from sin. And then in faith, we turn toward God who offers us salvation through his Son, Jesus. Now, by calling repentance and faith foundational principles, the writer's highlighting their crucial importance. And he's suggesting the essential qualities of these doctrines. They're not debatable. Uh, We don't discuss them and explore them as if we can choose between kind of several different paths toward God. It's just one of many. And the Bible's quite clear about that. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so he's suggesting these essential doctrines that aren't debatable. And if they're foundational, then we can't minimize them or view them as just optional toward discipleship. Like, oh, we'll get back to those things. No, that's the starting point. I like, I like the illustration that Matt Marino uses when he's describing another foundational doctrine. He says, I don't, I don't mean like a foundation to a house, even though I think that is what is meant here in this text. But I, I think this illustration is helpful. He says, I, I'm not referring it to that in that sense as if, you know, he says, of course, a, a foundation to a house is necessary to be sure. But it's remain, it remains flat and stationary. So if you only think of that, it's just sort of like it's, it's like once you've laid it, you're, you're done. But instead, think of something more like what DNA is to the whole of a living organism. And it just continues to feed and it continues to, to infiltrate, infiltrate everything we do. It's not assumed, but it is something that we go beyond. Thomas Watson states the importance of the doctrine of justification. He says, justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous. It's like a defect in the foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of the water of life. To have the poison of corrupt doctrine cast into this spring is damnable. Now, that's the idea is if it's a foundation, if it's foundational and you have a, some misunderstanding about repentance or faith, then that foundation is going to cause everything that's built upon it to be in jeopardy, right? It's not going to have that security that it needs. So... This is an elementary doctrine, but it's a crucial one to make sure we have a good understanding of. And I think that's the, the question. Do you, do you treat conversion, which contains that paired doctrine and repent, of, of repentance and faith, do you treat that as foundational? And what is the evidence for that? Are you interested in going beyond the subject of conversion? These are the the questions we should be asking ourselves, especially when we go through those seasons where we've grown complacent or indifferent about doctrinal knowledge. Go back to the beginning. Do you understand that? And if you do, have you gone deeper than that as well? And when we understand justification, when we enjoy the peace with God that results from that, 
how can we not be motivated to pursue something more, to pursue a greater knowledge and understanding of this God who's made a way for us to be at peace with him? So that's the first elementary doctrine that the author mentions here. It's soteriology, it's salvation. Just a couple of aspects of it. Many more things can be explored when you think of the, the broad topic of soteriology or salvation. But the second category that he focuses on is basic pneumatology. This is the Greek word for the Holy Spirit. It's a study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, these next two elements don't mention the Holy Spirit, so maybe you're confused. And what does it say? Of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands. I do think these go together, and I think they refer to aspects of our faith that reflect upon our dependency upon the Spirit's work. So they are perpetually practiced in our present sanctification until... Christ returns. If soteriology is kind of reflecting upon our past justification, these would be reflecting upon our present sanctification. And there's kind of two different approaches to understanding and interpreting these phrases. One, so um, the two are washings and laying on of hands. Now, some would say these elements refer to just Old Testament rituals. All right, they're, they're kind of the things that Jewish Christians would have been familiar with and that they were tempted to return to, as we've said. So this view would emphasize the encouragement to leave them and to go on to maturity. Uh, Essentially viewing maturity as settling into a more robust appreciation for the newness of the new covenant. These Old Testament rituals had been fulfilled and replaced by New Testament elements of worship. So baptism would refer to kind of Old Testament ceremonial washings. That's actually the word there. It says washings, but it's, the word is baptisms. Um, but, it's, but it's not your typical word for baptism. It's multiple baptisms. Right? So, it, so it has to do with maybe, in this understanding, ceremonial washings. And it would be similar. Actually, go, jump ahead to chapter 9, verse 10. The word is used there. We'll, we'll go back to the, where the sentence begins in verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Same word there. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. And so we'll, we'll get to that chapter later, but that's, that's what they would say. It's the same meaning here. And it's talking about just the various, various Old Testament washings. It, they would also view the laying on of hands in the same way. It's, you'll find that phrase a lot in the Old Testament in reference to ceremonial law, especially the sacrificial system and the priests laying on their hands to kind of trans, this symbolic transferring of sin upon the animal. Right. Now, the challenge I have with, with that view is that it, it would imply that either just these two are references to the Old Testament, but then the, the two that come prior to it in the list and the two that come after it are not necessarily directly connected to a 
Old Testament, Old Covenant Jewish understanding of the faith. So I find that part a little bit um, challenging to see. Like the, the context here, it would fit in one sense, but it also doesn't fit in, in that it's a, he's talking about doctrines of Christ. Um, and you could say the, these clearly point to Christ, and that's what you know, most of the scholars that I've read, if they take that view, they're saying that these are pointing to Christ, and that's in the sense that they needed to, to really have a deeper and richer understanding of Christ's fulfillment of them right, so that they would appreciate that. So that's certainly possible. The other one, though, is to say that all of these elements, as I've said, are reflections of what's taking place in the book of Acts. And so they're basic beliefs of the Christian faith. These are the doctrine of Christ. The danger is that the original audience had become content to remain at this elementary level of understanding. And so this would be consistent with sort of what we've already said in the previous passage, that they've grown lazy or sluggish to go beyond it. In this case, baptisms in the New Testament would refer to various water baptisms, including kind of distinguishing it from the practice that was ongoing in the book of Acts of that ceremonial washing that was taking place in the temple worship. So it's not as if that's out of the picture. We see that in the book of Acts, this ritual washing of the Pharisees. You have um, the baptism of John, where Christian baptism would need to be distinguished from. You have uh, the disciples also baptizing throughout Acts. So the, you also have a baptism of the Holy Spirit. You have a baptism uh, in reference to suffering. So all of those would be using the same kind of language or the same word. And, and so when he's talking about a multiple, this multiple sense, I think he's still centrally thinking of Christian baptism, this entrance into the church, the covenant community, but he's thinking of it in terms of its, the ability to distinguish between other, other baptisms that are taking place in their context. Christian baptism needs to be distinguished from every other baptism with which the audience would have been familiar with. And then the laying on of hands would be associated, you can see this in Acts chapter 6, 8, 13, each with a little bit of a nuance, but... It's associated with the receiving of the Holy Spirit, with ordination, with commissioning missionaries, and with healing. And I think, again, the the author presents these six doctrines in pairs, and the one thing that links these two in particular, I think, is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so in Trinitarian baptism, we identify with Christ And then the laying on of hands represents the guidance and the power of the indwelling spirit that we depend upon as we mature and as we grow. So Jonathan Edwards writes about the importance of the spirit's work. He says, the spirit of God in those who have sound and solid religion is a spirit of powerful, holy affection. And therefore, God is said to have given them the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, 2 Timothy 1, 7. And such, when they receive the Spirit of God and his sanctifying and saving influences, are said to be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire, by reason of the power and fervor of those exercises which the Spirit of God excites in them, and whereby their hearts, when grace is, is in exercise, may be said to burn within them. And there's, he's referencing the disciples on the road to Emmaus as Jesus was preaching to them how they said when he was talking, did not our hearts burn within them? So Edwards is saying, 
when the Spirit of God is at work in a believer, it affects their whole person. It affects the way they think, the way they act, the way they feel. Their affections are changed. And so we have to be careful that our understanding of the Holy Spirit doesn't fall into one of two extremes, right? One is that you kind of want to see the Spirit's activity proven by these miraculous signs and wonders, even willing to travel across the nation to to witness some work of the Spirit in a particular university, something like that. That's one thing, that that there's this overemphasis upon signs and wonders. Even Jesus rebuked his hearers for that. All you want to see is a miracle. You don't want to know me. You don't want to repent and believe. You just want to see something entertaining. And then the other extreme is that we sort of minimize the work of the Spirit. We don't acknowledge the Spirit even as a, a person of the Trinity. And we say little about the Spirit as an afterthought. So I think here, as a basic understanding, we do want to recognize that Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit after his ascension in a unique way for the New Covenant community. That his indwelling presence is a guarantee of our faith. And therefore, we, we, we should frequently find ourselves looking to and relying upon the Spirit. Right? We're encouraged to improve our baptism. Maybe you've heard me say that before. I've baptized others in the church. But do you know what that means? What does it mean to improve your baptism? Well, I think it means exactly what this passage is teaching us. That it means that we, we would not only mature to a point where we can testify of our own personal faith, but that we would continue to grow in godliness by the empowerment and enablement of the Spirit. And we hear this language of improving your baptism in the larger catechism, question 167. And I was going to read it, but it's, it's fairly long, and I would just encourage you to, to pull that out in your, in your household this week, study it with your family, study it privately. It's a helpful answer to understand, but it provides us very practical applications to this idea. And this lifelong duty, it says, should be practiced whenever we are tempted or witnessing the baptism of, of others. So every time we come to church and we see someone else baptized, it's a reminder of our own baptism. And we can reflect upon where we were when we were baptized and how we've progressed since then. We should seriously consider it with gratitude and reflection. We should be humbled by our ongoing struggle with sin and encouraged by the reminder of all the blessings that have been sealed up to us in the sacrament. So study that question for for deeper understanding of this. Larger Catechism 167. But maybe one word that could summarize how we would improve our baptism is gratitude. Do we seek to respond to the grace of God with gratitude for what he has done and dependence upon his spirit to walk in obedience? And that's the language I oftentimes use. I typically use that as before we recite the Ten Commandments at the end of the service. Now that now after recognizing all that he's done for us, let us respond with gratitude trusting in the spirit to enable us to walk in obedience right? because apart from the spirit's work we cannot please god well the last thing and we'll be brief with this one is 
We've talked about basic soteriology, basic pneumatology, and then basic eschatology. Basic eschatology. Eschatology is just the doctrine of last things. So he's addressed our past justification. He's addressed our present sanctification. And now he rounds out this outline of basic doctrine with a reference to our future glorification. And here it's a reference to the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The phrase, the resurrection of the dead, includes both the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits of our final resurrection, as well as the resurrection that all humans will receive upon his return. All humans, believers and unbelievers, will be resurrected from the dead at his return to face judgment. And that's the eternal judgment that's referenced next. This will be where the sheep are separated from the goats and they're sent to their respective destinations for eternity. Now, both events apply to everyone that upon Christ's return, we will all be resurrected and face the final judgment, which determines our eternal destination. And for many, this is a jolting thought that motivates us to go back to the first four elements and to pay closer attention to those. Because this is where the warning comes, and it's leading him directly into that warning in verses 4 and following. So clearly, he could have mentioned other doctrines. He could have mentioned other topics. Maybe you're thinking about several things that you think, man, I, I would think he would have talked about the Lord's Supper or something like that. This is just representative of those basic categories, I think. And the And the encouragement is that we would continue to study. We'd continue to go deeper. I had a friend of mine illustrated the importance of of teaching doctrine using a a baseball analogy. As we're gearing up and and starting to watch some some baseball and we're seeing these uh, new rules that are applied, I'm, I'm hearing people chatter that people aren't happy with it. But imagine taking your son to a baseball game for the first time. And you anticipate kind of leaning over to explain the rules to him throughout the game. And even then, he's not going to understand most of it. Maybe depending on how old he is. But once he begins to grasp kind of these basic rules, he can follow along. And he continues to watch and listen to your explanations. And he gains a greater appreciation with each new rule that begins to be displayed on the field. And he, he, he can understand it. Now, the alternative would be, you know, I've got my son here. He's, he's never watched a baseball game. He doesn't, he doesn't understand what's going on here. So you kind of meet with the umpires beforehand. You meet with the coaches and even the players. And you, you say, hey, let's just dumb down the rules so that my son can follow along easier. All right, let's, do we really need a rule book that's 200 pages long? I mean, that's a little ridiculous. Maybe we should shrink the size of the field, reduce the number of bases, restrict the pitching to fastballs only, restrict the amount of time pitchers have uh, between pitches, give the batters a certain amount of time to get into the batter box. All of these rules that we can add to make it go faster and simplify it. Maybe even reduce the number of bases. Right, but... It'd be a lot easier if we could get rid of box and bonds and steals. But these changes would simplify the game, and my son would be able to follow it a lot easier. But it would also limit the depth of enjoyment for everyone else, right? 
The game of baseball would become so unrecognizable that we'd have to call it something else, like cricket. You know, I mean, it would just be a different game. Nowhere near as good. The evangelical church has essentially been doing this, right? Gradually, methodically changing the rules, dumbing them down over the last century. And we're suffering from the lack of doctrinal knowledge as a result. Rather than catechizing the church and teaching fathers to catechize their children at home, we've given up on the practice altogether. And instead of equipping the saints with theologically rich catechism answers that enhance their participation in worship, we've tried to win their loyalty by lowering the bar. We've shortened our services, we get livelier music, entertaining speakers, but none of that can compete with Hollywood. None of that can compete with what the world has to offer. But by compromising our discipleship in the church and home, we've opened this wide door for a secular agenda to challenge the minds and capture the hearts of our children. And it's not that their argument, that their arguments are more convincing but it's that their system is consistently applied in the schools, the media, entertainment. And so I would say, make no mistake, catechizing has continued. That hasn't gone out of fashion. We've just shifted its regulation from the sacred to the secular. The result is that the vast majority of professing believers have only been catechized by secular media and institutions, and eventually we're going to have to call the church something else entirely because it's no longer going to look like the church or sound like the church or act like the church. And so even a basic understanding of eschatology is enough to motivate our desire to study the doctrines of our faith, to pass them on to our children. And I would implore you to utilize the catechisms of our denomination, the Westminster Standards. Utilize those in your homes during the week. Continue to lay that foundation of faith in your household. In the, very, in the, the last verse, verse 3, he says, and this we will do if God permits. He just closes with that recognition that God is sovereign. In preserving us right? if we are going to persevere it is because God has allowed it he has permitted it and so if we desire to grow to go deeper in the faith we can praise God for giving us that desire we can pray for more of that desire let us do so now Heavenly Father we thank you for your word we do thank you for even even the times where we face challenging convicting words that, that we're, we're still maybe stuck at an infant stage of, faith, of our faith. And we don't want to presume that everyone has an understanding, is able to move beyond that immediately. But Lord, help us not to be content in that stage, but to grasp it and keep challenging ourselves to move forward, to understand something deeper to study your word, even the passages that, that don't make sense to us now, to begin getting familiar with your word and asking questions that we don't understand and seeking answers. But Lord, 
we know that your spirit must be at work not only to give us that desire, but to give us understanding so that we can respond with gratitude for that work that you've done. And we don't want to presume that simply this all depends upon us, that we can just set out a plan and, and, and make it happen in our household. But Lord, we want to close in this message in the same way that the author of Hebrews closes, recognizing that we need you to permit us to go beyond, that we're dependent upon your sovereign will. So Lord, if we don't have that desire to go further, bring us to repentance. Stir up in us a greater, a greater sense of, of maturity and faith that you can bring us further along. I think many of us are intimidated by the thought. We think it's just too, there's, there's so much to read, there's so much to think about, and it's just hard to do, and so much easier to tune it out. Lord, help us to do the hard work, and help us to trust in you for the results. And Lord, even as we gather together week after week and as we sing these songs, as we open your word together, all of these are the means by which you're equipping your saints for the work of ministry, how you're building us up, bringing us to maturity. And Lord, it results in a greater recognition of your glory, a greater dependence upon your spirit, and a greater love for our neighbor. So, Lord, help us to keep all of that in mind as we worship you now and as we respond by celebrating the Lord's Supper. May all of it, may all of it build us up and send us out in confidence that you are at work. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. We'll sing hymn number 351.